European Hearts Journal Issue at a Glance, Volume 38, Issue 14, Focus Issue on Acute Coronary Syndromes, by Editor-in-Chief Professor Thomas Lucia. Management of patients undergoing percutaneous vascular interventions, balancing ischemic benefit and bleeding risk. Since the seminal development of catheter-based balloon angioplasty of vascular disease by Andreas Grinzig at the University Hospital in Zurich in the 1970s, the procedure has made a huge impact in the management of patients with both peripheral and coronary artery disease. Improvements of the catheter material, the development of stents and antiplatelet drugs has expanded the indications further and further and optimised the clinical results in an unforeseen manner. This focus issue begins with the two final articles of the Year in Cardiology series. Firstly, in the Year in Cardiology 2016 Coronary Interventions, Carlo Di Mario, Carlotta Sorini-Dini and William Vines Note that in 2016, multiple randomized studies supported the 3-5 to five year efficacy of metallic drug-eluting stents in left main disease, but casted doubts, after an initial enthusiasm for this concept, on the long-term outcome after implantation of fully biodegradable stents. Furthermore, mixed messages have been published about the importance of physiological guidance of coronary revascularization. It appears that tests are helpful for non-culprit lesions in ST-segment elevation myocardial infarction, but are of questionable value in multivessel disease of all comers. Of note, further studies defeated the paradigm that a fully arterial surgical revascularization delivers better clinical outcome. Peripheral arterial disease is the Cinderella of cardiovascular medicine, although the outcome of such patients remains grim. In The Year in Cardiology 2016, Peripheral Circulation, Marco De Carlo and Victor Aboyans reviewed the progress made in this field on behalf of the ESC Working Group on Aorta and Peripheral Vascular Diseases. The 2016 Epidemiological Update of Cardiovascular Disease in Europe has attributed 45% of the deaths to this category, including 12% due to stroke and 14% to other cardiovascular diseases, highlighting the majority burden of non-coronary artery diseases involving the aorta, carotid and lower extremity arteries and venous thromboembolism in Europe. The implantation of a metal stent, be it with a drug or without it, puts a foreign body in the coronary circulation, which by itself activates platelets and may trigger a stent thrombosis. Thus, inhibition of both the cyclooxygenase pathway and purinergic P2Y12 receptors is crucial to prevent such a potentially lethal event. However, even after re-endothelialization of implanted stents, Coronary patients are prone to future cardiac events, mainly in other arteries than the intervened one. Thus, dual antiplatelet therapy has been recommended for prolonged periods of time, i.e. 6 months for stable and 12 months in acute patients respectively. Unfortunately, prolonged dual antiplatelet therapy, while reducing ischemic events, is associated with a considerable risk of bleeding, 
In a clinical research manuscript entitled Three, Six or Twelve Months of Dual Antiplatelet Therapy After DES Implantation in Patients with or Without Acute Coronary Syndromes, an individual patient data pairwise and network meta-analysis of six randomized trials and 11,473 patients. Greg W. Stone and colleagues from the Columbia University Medical Center in New York, USA, sought to determine whether the optimal dual antiplatelet therapy duration after drug-eluting stent placement varies according to the clinical presentation. The authors performed an individual patient data pairwise and network meta-analysis comparing short-term, i.e. equal or less than six months, versus long-term dual antiplatelet therapy up to one year, as well as three-month versus six-month and versus one year of dual antiplatelet therapy. The primary study outcome was the one-year composite risk of myocardial infarction or definite-slash-probable stent thrombosis. Six trials were included in which dual antiplatelet therapy after drug-eluting stent consisted of aspirin and clopidogrel. Among 11,473 randomized patients, 58.5% had stable coronary artery disease and 41.5% presented with acute coronary syndrome, of which two-thirds had unstable angina. In acute coronary syndrome patients, dual antiplatelet therapy of six months or less was associated with non-significantly higher one-year rates of myocardial infarction or stent thrombosis compared to those treated for one year, whereas in stable patients, rates of myocardial infarction and stent thrombosis were similar between the two strategies. By network meta-analysis, three months but not six-month dual antiplatelet therapy was associated with higher rates of myocardial infarction or stent thrombosis in those with acute coronary syndromes, whereas no significant differences were apparent in stable patients. Short dual antiplatelet therapy was associated with lower rates of major bleeding compared with one-year therapy, irrespective of clinical presentation. All-cause mortality was not significantly different with short versus long dual antiplatelet therapy in both patients with stable coronary artery disease and acute coronary syndrome. The authors conclude that optimal duration of dual antiplatelet therapy after drug-eluting stent implantation differs according to clinical presentation. Even though most enrolled acute coronary syndrome patients were relatively low risk, only three months of dual antiplatelet therapy was associated with increased ischemic risk, whereas this duration appeared safe in stable patients. Prolonged dual antiplatelet therapy increases bleeding regardless of clinical presentation. Further study is required to identify the optimal duration of dual antiplatelet therapy after drug-eluting stent implantation in individual patients based on their relative ischemic and bleeding risks. These findings are further discussed in an accompanying editorial authored by Philippe-Gabriel Steg from the Hôpital Bichat in Paris, France. This issue is further discussed in the next research article entitled Personalizing the Decision for Prolonged Dual Antiplatelet Therapy, Development, Validation and Potential Impact of Prognostic Models for Cardiovascular Events and Bleeding in Myocardial Infarction Survivors, 
by Harry Hemingway and colleagues from the University College London Medical School in the UK. The authors developed models as an aid for the decision to prolong dual antiplatelet therapy using population-based electronic health records from Calibre, England, 2000-2010, of 12,694 patients evaluated one year after acute myocardial infarction. The prognostic models were then validated in a cohort of 5,613 patients and the net clinical benefit determined. Prognostic models were well calibrated for cardiovascular events, with a C-index of 0.75 and a C-index of 0.72 for bleeding. Overall, the three-year risk of cardiovascular events was 16.5% and for major bleeding, 1.7%. For every 10,000 patients treated per year, the models predicted in highest-risk patients 249 prevented cardiovascular events and 134 major bleeding events. In lowest-risk patients, the models predicted 28 prevented cardiovascular events and 9 major bleeding events caused by the dual antiplatelet therapy. There was a net clinical benefit of prolonged dual antiplatelet therapy in 63% to 99% of patients depending on how benefits and harms were weighted. The authors conclude that prognostic models for cardiovascular events and bleeding using population-based electronic health records may help to personalize decisions for prolonged treatment beyond one year following acute myocardial infarction. These promising findings are critically discussed in a thoughtful editorial by Fernando Alfonso from the Hospital Universitario de la Princesa in Madrid, Spain. Besides dual antiplatelet therapy, the patient's gender may also influence outcome after infarction. Indeed, gender differences in the presentation and outcome of cardiac conditions have attracted a lot of attention recently. Besides biological gender differences, a gender gap in the management of acute coronary syndromes has been implied in the worse outcome of women after such an event, although not all studies could confirm that. In the next research manuscript, Acute Coronary Syndrome in Women, Rising Hospitalizations in Middle-Aged French Women, 2004-2014, Amélie Gabet and colleagues from the Institut de Vieille Sanitaire in Saint-Maurice, France, analyzed trends in annual incidents of hospitalized acute coronary syndromes in France from 2004 to 2014. In 2014, 113,407 patients, 32.2% of which were women and 67.8%, were hospitalized for acute coronary syndromes. Among women, one quarter were younger than 65 years of age and one third presented with an ST-segment elevation myocardial infarction, one fifth with a non-ST-segment elevation myocardial infarction and nearly half of the patients with unstable angina. From 2004 to 2014, the rates of age-standardized admissions for acute coronary syndrome in women of less than 65 years of age increased by 6.3%. This rise in acute coronary syndrome was driven by a significant 21.7% increase in ST-segment elevation myocardial infarction and 53.7% increase in non-ST-segment elevation myocardial infarction. The largest increase in ST-segment elevation myocardial infarction 
was observed among women aged between 45 to 54 years of age, with an increase of 3.6% per year. In those 65 years of age or older, significant decreases in all acute coronary syndrome types were observed. Gabay and colleagues conclude that this nationwide study showed disturbing trends in ST-segment elevation myocardial infarction annual incidence, especially among younger women. This increase is being largely attributed to an increase in smoking and obesity in this patient population. Efforts to strengthen primary prevention of cardiovascular disease in younger women is urgently required as these main risk factors are modifiable and as there is a growing evidence of higher short-term mortality of coronary heart disease in women. This manuscript is accompanied by an insightful editorial by Catherine Gebhardt from the University of Zurich in Switzerland. Bleeding is not only affecting outcome after infarction during long-term dual antiplatelet therapy, but also acutely during primary percutaneous intervention. Most commonly, access site bleedings are complicating the procedure. Some, but not all, studies suggested that the radial access is associated with less bleeding, although not all confirmed a clinically relevant difference. This issue has been further investigated in a research article entitled Radial versus Femoral Access in Patients with Acute Coronary Syndromes with or Without ST-Segment Elevation, a pre-specified analysis from the randomized Minimizing Adverse Hemorrhagic Events by Transradial Access Site and Systemic Implementation of Angio-X Matrix Access by Pascal Vranks and colleagues from Hasselt, Belgium. In the Minimizing Adverse Hemorrhagic Events by Transradial Access Site and Systemic Implementation of Angio-X, or Matrix, program, patients were randomized to radial or femoral access, stratified by ST-segment elevation and non-ST-segment elevation myocardial infarction. The 30-day co-primary outcomes were major adverse cardiovascular events, defined as death, myocardial infarction, or stroke. Net adverse clinical events were defined as major adverse cardiovascular events or major bleeding. In the overall study population, radial access reduced the net adverse clinical events but not the major adverse cardiovascular events endpoint at the pre-specified 0.025 alpha. Major adverse cardiovascular events occurred in 6.1% of ST-segment elevation myocardial infarctions with radial access and in 6.3% with femoral access. In non-ST-segment elevation patients, 11.3% with radial access, 13.9% with femoral access, and 13.9% with femoral access had such events. Net adverse clinical events occurred in 7.2% of ST-segment elevation myocardial infarctions with radial access and in 8.3% with femoral access. In non-ST-segment elevation infarctions, the rates were 12.2% with radial access and 14.7% with femoral access. All-cause mortality and access site actionable bleeding favoured radial access irrespective of acute coronary syndrome type. The authors conclude that radial as compared with femoral access provided consistent, albeit moderate, benefit across the whole spectrum of patients with acute coronary syndrome. 
These clinically important findings are further discussed in an editorial by Sanjeet Singh Jolly from the McMaster University Population Health Research Institute in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. The editors hope that this issue of the European Hearts Journal will find the interest of its readers.